I'm Tiller Russell. Welcome back to The Dangerous Art, the documentary. Anything worthwhile takes time, and the myth of the overnight success is just that, a myth. Debbie Millman said that. But this is particularly true of our guest on today's episode, Emmett Malloy, who just exploded into the global consciousness with his new Netflix film, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. But the truth is, Emmett Malloy has quietly been making beautiful films for well over 20 years. He's directed music videos for Vampire Weekend and docs about the White Stripes, and a film that captured my imagination more than 20 years ago, a beautiful little surf movie called Thicker Than Water, the soundtrack for which has been playing quietly in the back of my life. I remember how when I first saw that film, I thought, man, one day I wish I could be the Malloys. And here I am, 20 years later, getting a chance to sit down and talk with Emmett Malloy and talk about his new film. As you'll find out today, making documentaries is an improvisational enterprise. It's not always done with the perfect circumstances. I once said it was a combination of playing private detective and voodoo, and it's all that, and something more. Mistakes are made along the way, and often those mistakes inform the film to be what it ultimately needs to become. By way of example, today I forgot to put new batteries in the Zoom recorder, so it ran out halfway through this interview. So, so please forgive the quality of the sound at times. Documentaries are drawn from life and the stumbles, bumbles, failures, and mistakes are often the very fingerprints that make them authentically what they are. Um, so, you know, it, it is an interesting... There are those that would say, hey, this is an unlikely movie for Emmett to be doing, um, but I think that there's also... You've been doing music all your life, um, and, in a, and, and, and like some of my frankly, some of my favorite music docs for a long time. So to me, in a weird way, there's nothing um, necessarily surprising about it. But like, tell me what your, tell me what your point of entry to it was and why, why you gravitated to this project. Yeah, I mean, certainly I'm, I'm with you. I've always been a big fan of the tradition of music films, you know, and I've been determined to like get a new top five because I feel like it's still the same top five you'll get like it's got to be like the last waltz or don't look back or maybe stop making sense you know it, there's very few that kind of remain these kind of things that in are inspiring yeah in the canon give me shelter yeah. that's another one yeah right? totally all those so you know I kind of was always like I want to kind of be part of that tradition you know I kind of want to maybe make a seminal film with somebody in the modern era. So yeah, that that has always been big for me. And you know, for this film in particular, I think the point of entry for me was, again, it came off of that. My friends were, um, had worked on 20 Feet from Stardom and Searching for Sh Sugarman. They were involved in kind of like getting the rights from the various estates. And they, one of them used to run Palm Pictures, which was Chris Blackwell's company that yep. did a lot of films that I was super into and always put out those like director's series, like the Spike Jones. I love those. I love those. And they did the Towns Van Zandt movie, right? Yeah, those, those were huge for me, you know, coming up. And I'm always like a dreamed of, man, what if I got my own little series, you know? Um, and so those guys I always have had a good relationship with and have always been working on something with them. And the Biggie rights came up. Somebody got in touch with Miss Wallace, connected them with my friends, and suddenly it was on. Like they were like, well, you know, we, we've been waiting to make kind of the, the estate approved documentary. And um, we think you guys are great. And then they threw me in the mix and suddenly I'm sitting down at the Red Lobster in the Poconos with Miss Wallace, you know, kind of maybe the one of the most famous living mothers that I can think of and chatting with her about her son. And again, I, I kind of was just working off of like, hey, maybe this will just be a cool life experience. Those, the idea of making a film always is so far away from those initial meetings. You're like, which one of these will really be the one I'll be doing. 
you know how it is so many you just kind of develop and they disappear for one reason or another but at this lunch i was kind of like oh man i felt a little like how did i even get here mm-hmm. and then through the lunch we just had this great like it was a very normal human conversation i was just kind of able to get to know her her son she was very like extending we just hit it off and after i left that meeting i walked out of there going like i i you know same thing like i think i'm perfect for this because she told me about the humanity of her son what a great guy he was his sense of humor these trips to jamaica they would take all these things started to make it feel more like a coming of age movie you know and that that i could grab a hold of i kind of got rid of the fear of like ah i'm not a hip hop guy i grew up loving all the seminal records but i, I kind of like once that meeting happened i felt like man i i got this you know it just gave me the confidence in myself to know that i had somebody real to connect with on this project in human terms yeah and then i felt like it was kind of more she needed a personality that could wrangle all these wild friends and personalities over the year and that's what i'm good at you know i'm good at earning people's trust okay so a couple of things i want to explore with you but it's so interesting to be having these conversations because if you don't do this for a living, it's like people don't understand how weird it is. Like our entire life is spent being invited to like lunches or asking, trying to get yourself invited to lunches. And you know, like, okay, this may result in the next three years of my life, or it may be nothing. Um, but you always have to say yes, right? When you're invited to the lunch, you have to say yes. No doubt. I mean, those, those are, um, most of my, uh, most incredible experiences <laughs> have been lunches that didn't amount to much. They were chalked up as just an incredible couple of hours getting to talk with somebody that either means a lot to you or got you in on some weird world you never thought you'd get the inside scoop on and I'm I'm cool with that chalking those up you know but again there's not much that delineates between those lunches and the ones that track you know all of a sudden you, you, you know I had that lunch and I'm driving back and the manager who Wayne was a producer on the film and has run the estate with Miss Wallace the whole way through just kind of like high fives me is like yo the gig is yours and I'm like what I don't even know wow. what's going on here you know like he just caught a few minutes with her afterwards and it was enough for her to say you're the guy and you know managing somebody i know that's all it takes you know if you if you got the two people that really are making those decisions you don't need oh we'll follow up with your people it could be a mom going i trust that guy and and that's almost the best point of entry always cuz it feels it makes you feel like it's the real thing you're not interpreting agents or dealing with everybody's you know kind of like i guess layered answers it's just a straight up honest i like that kid and i feel like he'd be a good fit to tell my son's story and we were on well it's so interesting i mean you you bring up so many interesting ideas uh that that i think are you know worth exploring for a minute which is a lot of the job of being a documentary director is a it happens long before you're ever on set ever with a camera it's this um connecting with people in a real way and um sort of empathy and 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 love and availability and fascination right i mean do, tell tell me about it what's your, what's your experience of of that always that i i think what i love always the most is the trust that i gain through the process cuz it speaks a lot about you as a person You know again like my stories are always kind of like really getting in there with people you know kind of like whether it be a band and they're just letting you join along for the ride and and you're working your way into where all of a sudden you're inches away from them on stage and they're cool with it you know and and backstage for vulnerabilities that the first nine shows you got the door shut in your face and then the 10th show you're like wow why is it unlocked 
Uh, there, it, it's a passport, right? It's a it's a passport. You're you're getting this passport to Jack White's world or yeah, to it, Biggie's world, and it's such a um, it's such a powerful gift to be granted that. Agreed, and I I always have valued it, and and especially when it's a, a topic uh, that lights you up. You know, you, you know, we've all been on ones where maybe you didn't um, it didn't turn out the way you thought or possibly the access wasn't what you needed to make it great. You always find a cool story to tell, but when one gives you all those things, the intimacy, the access, you know, and, and you're into it and you're vested in it, you know, we're, that's what I live for, for this particular aspect of my life is like, I love that chase. I love getting into worlds cause it's so beautiful. And I've been doing it since, thicker than water. I remember those trips being with these guys that were these surfers. Kelly yep. Slater at that point was larger than life to me. Even as a yep. young man, he was already so famous to me that I, I just, you know, realized quickly I, I wouldn't do very well if I was there impeding the process. You know, I just had to, you know, kind of gain a friendship with them and then hopefully I disappear. And that, that took a minute to understand that dynamic of like, you got to really get to know somebody and kind of be evaporating in front of their eyes a little bit. And that, that took a long time to get that dance right. That, that's a beautiful articulation to me of what the kind of documentary directing process is, because you have to be completely locked in with another human being. And yet at the same time, it's, you, then you kind of you vanish, you ghost away and disappear so that they can be themselves. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my favorite part of all this. You know, this one particular, this project, some are very focused, whether it be Jack White or some of the surf stuff or, you know, um, even um, the Freddie Roach, Manny Pacquiao one I did. You know, those are real focused on specific individuals. This one was different because there was so many personalities. There was so much... Um, accrued emotions and things over the past 25 years that each time I thought I had the hang of it, I, I got a quick reminder that, that I'm not family, you know, not in a negative way, just that every, every character in my, in this film required a real special approach and each one was really different. So after I got connected with Miss Wallace, Suddenly I'm in Jamaica making a movie that kind of was more about her and her family. And it felt cool. It felt very insular, like, wow, how cool I got all this. Cause I was in Jamaica. There's no red tape on what you can do filming there. You're just in this, I felt like I was making one of our surf films, just mm -hmm. traveling and grandma's here. This room looks insane. Let's film your interview. You just told me this incredible story. Let's lay it down. Then after that, I come back to Brooklyn and kind of get, the rest of the personalities, the, you know, people who have been in films that they didn't love the way they were portrayed in a prior Biggie film, or that wasn't what the filmmaker promised. And that, that took me a long time to get through that. And that had several uh, moments where I felt like, shit, our movie's going to take a big hit here. And um, I kind of found it landed where I wanted it to land after so many kicks in the gut. So it landed beautifully. And I think one of the reasons why it landed so beautifully and so effectively is because it's composed of these different constituent elements, right? The Jamaica story and Gwendolyn, that, that's her name, right? The, the grandmother who was just like, what a striking and beautiful character and also 97 years old, right? Which just sort of goes to show, like kind of imagine the life Christopher could have led, yeah. you know, with, with sort of those genes and whatever. But I guess let's let's dive into a couple of those characters, which is starting. And let me tell you a couple of things that struck me about the movie. And then and then you can tell me, you know, how you pieced it together. But in a way, this movie is it's the story of Christopher more than it is the story of Biggie in some fundamental way. It's very human and it's very relatable. And it's the origin myth of sort of before you get to superstardom and what it takes to get there. And what another element that was so striking to me was um, 
his mother was such a beautiful character, such an unexpected kind of character. And the, you know, Scorsese famously said, somebody once asked Scorsese, you make these movies about these like gangsters and predators and whatever, like, how do you do it? And he's like, I give them a mother, you know? And then you can suddenly relate. And th that was such a beautiful thing about this. Like what an incredible character uh, at the center of it. Talk about the connection with her and sort of that being one of the incredible elements that you start with. Yeah, I mean, that that was everything to this film. And, and beyond just being able to sit with her and set my interview course around things that I learned from that conversation. Because again, just to get it back, I, I pitched this movie from the beginning to be called Christopher. That's what it was called. It was always focusing on the first 20 years of his life. Then he, you know, like all seminal artists, they write that record that really reflects their life, that first record that everybody speaks about. And then you kind of get on the cover of Source and you get a platinum record. That's as far as their dream went. And that was always my idea is to stop the film there, you know, kind of that's kind of when fame is at its best. You know, you, you blow up, but you kind of blow up on your terms and maybe some of the dark sides of becoming famous haven't settled in. And so that was always my pitch to Valletta from day one. I was wanted to call it Christopher. We evolved and we'll go through the evolutions of the film, but sitting with her that first lunch, you know, it was clear um, that there was way more depth to her son. And I was already onto it because I was like, wow, this Jamaica thing is real interesting. You know, those are the things that lit me yeah. up before that lunch. So after that, it was just clear, like, we got to get to Jamaica, like quickly. And, and that was my first pivot with her was, was a couple stories out of that lunch were in particular, it was his uncle Dave that she said was the first guy he ever really kind of like got excited about music in front of and they would sneak off all the time. That interested me, interested me tremendously because, you know, we're at an era where I have a couple photos of this part of his life. I, once I heard there were storytellers to dig into, I felt a lot of confidence. It was that it was that he went to bed every night listening to country music. I love that. Amazing detail. That was on the radio that that every morning in Jamaica, that's what his mom listened to there. And that's what his mom carried. And that was her security blanket in Brooklyn. Country music that that fascinated me. And then to run that up against a friend I interviewed right out of the gates who said the same thing kind of made you go, whoa, there's a lot to this. And then the last thing was she told this story that I tried so hard to get into the movie, but she said the three times she heard him cry were when Tupac died, when his friend Oli died, and when he fell in love with his baby goat in Jamaica, and then later came back and was like, where's the goat? And they're like, you're eating it. And it, it, it wow. affected him in a profound way where she's like, I knew he was such a sweet, sensitive person. At that phase, it just, it, it stuck with me. And those three stories kind of made me go like, we got to get to Jamaica and begin there. And you know how it goes when you begin your film that way, suddenly you're like, well, I'm kind of not bound to archival. I, I started to feel like, I know I can't sustain the whole movie this way, but if I could get through the early years of his life and have stuff to put on screen, then I'm, I'm going to be sitting in a good place when I kind of hit 95 and I know I can click into real life. Okay, so let's talk about some of the specific things shot in Jamaica, because that was another really fascinating aspect. So you've got, okay, you've got, like, let's talk about the constituent parts that you're working with, right? So you've got the interview with his grandmother, which is amazing. And then you've got these verite scenes like with the uncle where he's out there you know in the neighborhood you know singing laying down rhymes and whatever so then suddenly there's like a verite component to it and then you've also got these like this really beautiful evocative um you know the imagery of the kid that you're you know of the that ends up being sort of like a stand-in i guess you know sort of for his life or a sort of poetic lyrical um rendering of it are you aware when you're shooting in Jamaica what these different things are or and where, how they'll play? Or are you just following intuition? A um, little bit of both. You know, I think we, we you know, went as far as like I right when I landed, I'm like, give me out to see some kids and I want to find somebody that could kind of 
I'm not looking for a direct, but I want somebody who can evoke that. And I, I was clear, cause you know, you've been through so many of these, you're always pitching animation or recreations. It's always part of like the first phase of things. And then you always solve it with something you don't even know if you can pull off. You're like, yeah, animation. Let's go with that. That'll get us to phase yeah. two. But you secretly know that animation will never be in your right. film. Right. You know, it might be the titles or something, you know, like it, they might uh, blossom that way. But I, I was aware of it and I knew like that Jamaica trip really hearkened thicker than water. I felt yeah. like I was getting dropped and I kind of had to begin somewhere, you know, and I, I knew I had these places I wanted to go with the interviews. You know, but sitting down with Dave when he showed up and he was just, uh, you know, crispy in big shirts and like he was such a larger than life character. I knew right away I was like, wow, this guy's going to be incredible to film. So I was like started to pick it up and then kind of seeing like grandma was again somebody we had known about. But she right away just kind of almost with urgency grabbed me and told me the story about learning how he was killed on the television. And you're like, what in the world did you just tell me? And suddenly that became this real urgent thing with so much clarity. But stuff like the kid, I was like, look, I'm, I'm scrappy. Like if, if we're there and I have three interviews to shoot and I'm there for a week, I'm gonna be shooting every second of that week. You know, I'm up early getting the great environments and, and I just know that that's my style of filmmaking largely due to, you know, just kind of doing things for no money. You're just kind of under that thing of like, we got to get great stuff. I'll get up early to get a time-lapse of a sun and coming up. So, so talk about like working with your DP in that regard where it's, you know, because when you're doing that kind of freeform improvisational jazz filmmaking, you know, which, and it's so interesting because you can see all of the DNA from Thicker Than Water in, 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 you know, in this sort of as applied to this film and the Jamaica stuff, but it's not like sort of call sheets and locations and whatever you are, you're following, you know, you're following a muse. And what is that communication with your DP like? Um, hectic, you know, I will say that um, it was a DP I had worked with for the first time. It's somebody we had um, resumes that, almost, you know, we felt like we had been up to similar things in our lives, age and arc and everything. He was a beast, but it was overwhelming to him because it's early. Yeah? You're figuring it out as you go. You're, you're excited by something just sometimes that isn't worth much, but you get fired up in the same way you do about sometimes a meaningful thing. And so then you're kind of like, it's hard to act with the confidence that you gain while you're doing a project. You're early, you're, you're kind of admitting, I'm figuring this out. And sometimes when frustration comes out at you, you that's the first thing of like that, like a marathon, like I can't, you can't burn me out. You can't throw a, a banana peel and I'm going to slip on it in mile one, you know, like yeah. it ain't fucking happening with me because I've done a lot of these. So hang in there. Let me find this and, and we'll get there together. And I had to keep reminding people of that because it's easy to think that things that happen over those days could be led to be frustrating, but they're not because in that one day, if I got the grandma interview, then that's a great day in, in the arc of my long-winded journey, but it took him a minute to get it. And I had like all these projects, I had three DPs and two editors for no other reason than just the length of time this movie took. Okay, so, so a couple of really interesting things you're bringing up there, which is, I have this every time when we start these things because you're sort of starting with like the spark of a vision for what it could be, but it's not a clear map, right? It's like, it's a jigsaw puzzle. You have no idea how many pieces and you don't know what the final picture is and you may throw away half the pieces. And I always have this like, like imposter syndrome midway through, like, do they think I'm a fucking idiot? You know, and I like sometimes they do, but you kind of have to like ride with me here. We're going to get there, which it sounds like is what you're describing with your DP, right? Uh, big time in a, in a big way. And I, I think like uh, anything, um, you know, you need like that first trip was odd. Like we're in Jamaica and I'm making more or less a movie on his mother. So then you come back and you're like, wow, we smashed it. We got all this great stuff. 
And then I start editing a movie that you're like, wow, this is insane, but it's kind of on his mom. You know, then you're, you're like, great. So where do I pivot here? So although I thought I like did very good there, I felt a lot of confidence. I was still like, how am I going to bring this guy to life? Like when, when is he going to shine? And uh, several iterations of my movie out of the gates before we had, you know, gotten the puff interview before D rock came on, I had this incredible kind of different movie. It was very atmospheric. It was almost like the trip of Jamaica and the neighbor Donald and the funeral almost sustained like a two hour movie. And it was amazing, crazy yeah. to watch it that way. But what was cool is it led me to go like, damn, I got to, how am I pivoting out of this? But it also really got me to D-Rock. Showing okay. him that footage gave me the, like, wow, you're on it. Okay, so 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 like talk me through this pivot because this is a really interesting piece of this. So you blast out of the cannon, you're making the Jamaica documentary about, you know, Christopher's mom, and then you hit the kind of like D-Rock as the next pivot point, which is both um an incredible cache of archival material and an intimate character, another person who loved him from a different perspective. How does the D-Rock of it all come about? And how does part chapter one with his mom influence chapter two with D-Rock? Big time. Like it was massive because I think prior to then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten his interest. What lit him up weirdly was on my Instagram, which is just mostly my kids and, it's a private Instagram. I saw a request from him post Jamaica trip. So I, you know, kind of saw his name and, and it was a picture. I put up a picture of me talking to Big's mom. It was real unbraggadocious. It was like, if you knew I was going to Jamaica and knew what I was there for, this picture would interest you. Uh, it wasn't like Biggie movie coming. It was far from that. And, and he hit me up and was like, yo, man, that is so ill. You got to go on a hike with his grandmother, man. I can't wait to. And suddenly he had this fun banter with me where it wasn't like, you know, that thing, like that, that barrier just automatically disappeared with the fact that I put the time in to go put focus on this aspect of his life. And he was like, damn, I know you're on the right path now. So let's meet up. So cut to him coming. I have like, a, you know, you know, these types of days I had to do like five interviews in a day in Brooklyn. So I kind of find a setup. We did it at like a church, you know, that always has amazing like a rec location. By the yeah, way. it has like location. a rec center and, you know, it gives you like five looks to get at. And so D-Rock was going to be my last one. And so I'm waiting there and, you know, I have my full crew, which on documentary days, those days all mean something to your budget. And um, D-Rock finally comes in and is like, yo, okay, nice to meet you. Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? So we pull off to the side. And I mean, literally my crew is like six yards that way lit. I mean, I see like the stand in everything. And I'm, I'm like, cool, let's, let's sit down. And, you know, we were kind of under the gun time-wise. And he's like, yo, I'm not doing the interview today. And I was like, cool. All right, well could we at least hang and talk or something? And so we did, we ended up talking for three hours with the crew sitting right there. And at the end he was like, man, so good to meet you. And you know what? I'll do your interview. Just not here. You know what? I, I kind of, I made it out of the hood. So could we do my interview in LA? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll see you there. And he, you know, it was clear that meant a lot to him for me not to pressure him. You know, he, he wanted to get to know me first. And I started to then realize this isn't because of me. This is, this is an emotional journey that he might be ready to kind of go there. And I'm just the guy that might be able to help him do something with this footage. And I feel like now he might trust me. And then we were on our so, way. So interesting. So interesting. So let me just walk back through it. And so I've, so I've got it all in my head. So it begin. you post the, the Instagram just sort of like, Hey, as not as like putting bait in the water to get the next piece of the film, but just as like, Hey, this is a snapshot of my life. And he, he responds to that, reaches out to you and, you know, because he can tell, Hey, this guy's like spiritually on the right path here with this story. Right. Yeah, and it's it's been crazy because even doing now, we've done some interviews together and uh, 
the emotional outpouring that he gives to me for handling his friend life like this. It's really been the most incredible emotion that I've had when releasing this film. It's like, man, dude, D-Rock, you're getting me emotional. You know, like I sit and hear this and he gets into it. And of course, I know I gave all that. You know, I know it. I could never say it to anybody. But when his friend that that the journey I know, the journey we went on to get to where we got to in the end, to get his trust, to share things with him, it means a lot for me for him to say that to some random NPR person um, in front of everybody. Because the journey started with this weird, like, yo, I'm not doing the interview. I was like, wow, you know, and to get to where we got means a lot. And for all them and all the kids that they grew up with through that era, for them to all be so positive about this, yo, that's how you hook your brother up, you know, that type of comments. When he's been feeding me those from um, like DJ Premier, you're like, man, that's, that means so much to me, you know, like that, that's something where you feel validated because, you know, you're in this, you want people to see him, but you mainly just want to do a good film. You know, you just want the film to resonate because you say all this arty stuff along the way. And when one kind of hits it in the end, you know how hard it is. So you, you feel very grateful. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully said. Um, so I want to go into the next sort of like puzzle piece that comes together. Once you've got him and you've got his interview and you've got that intimacy on his... I guess his buy-in for the perspective in the interview, then there's this like incredible cache of archival material. And talk about, you know, coming across that, what it was, winding your way through it, what are the ethical decisions of both like, can I use all this shit? Can I not? What's bad? What's, you know what I mean? Like, is it, talk about that. Well, it was, it was a ton of footage and, you know, he was just a young kid. So nobody was filming with any intent or anything, you know, so... And, you know, for me, it's like you, you just, you know, you want at it and you know, you're going to represent it well. Cause everything I've said to this friend and new, new person acquaintance in my life is trust me, trust me, you know? So the last thing I'm going to do is dive in and get scandalous things. They were young kids. They were immature. Like everybody at that age, there's stuff in there that maybe for shock value, you could have used, you know, them all partying and having fun, but that was so off from where I wanted to be with this. You know, I was more digging in for how ways that I could bring this guy to life for people. That that's all I wanted. And I didn't need anything weird to do that. I needed the, the quality moments of, of them filming each other. And so it just took a long time. But what, what's interesting, I think is just far as the process and how it went for me, we began William Green, our producer via, um, the guy who did produce the Amy Winehouse, Senna, you know, all those good movies, James Gay Reese, he had had a guy call him and say, yo, I got all this footage, footage on Biggie from 95 that I filmed for this Japanese television show. It's three days of me rolling around with them. And James is like, dude, I'm not doing a Biggie film. Years went by, his best friend now is producing the film for me. And he's like, dude, I remember I have this card of a guy who had this footage so we jump on that shit right away and sure enough this guy has 12 hours of cruising around with them and wow. it's amazing stuff it it needs you know on its own it's three days of dudes smoking weed and right. just ro rolling around like fuck we're stuck with these guys in the back seat but when you placed it in the right moments it, you were able to find this great emotional stuff that really feels like, well, that's how he rolled a joint. Holy shit. Look at what, listen to what they're listening to. That's the new Raekwon album. Like the day it came out. Oh my God. They're waking up at the hotel the morning after the source awards, you know, and we started to cherry pick things. So of course we, we go all in on this guy's footage and you've got it in the edit and you're cutting it in the movie. Oh, like deep. We are deep. I mean, I've already shown a cut to Netflix and I'm like, the whole time, you know, as an, I grew up an editor. So I'm like, give me the, I, I want the digibetas. Give me the digibetas. I don't trust this. And so sure enough, he, I think just through the, us kind of doing it with Netflix, like everybody just thought like, I, I want my own film. You know, yeah. I'm going to make this on my own. So he literally just disappeared. 
you know, and you, and once a guy stops, you know, interacting, you know, in your gut that that ship is sailing. So that really then put a lot of pressure on this relationship with D-Rock that I couldn't do anything about, you know, it was going to naturally occur or it wasn't. But right when that footage fell out, I, I D-Rock kind of landed, we landed on doing it. He wanted to do it at the Pacific dining car, which I thought was great. Love and it. and it suddenly we were talking about it and, and that relationship began. And, you know, that's the goal to these ones that work out for you is like when one door slams the good ones, another door opens and you keep going. And, and this one had that. And with D rock, it was just sitting with him. I've sat and watched with footage with him for two days in my office. And just again, tried to calm every good story I could get out of him. Cause you know, I know the good footage, you know, like I'm going to look through that stuff and kind of get into some weird moment that he may not feel is the, you know, but it's kind of a, you know, deeper, intimate thing. So I knew we wouldn't get that much out of hanging together and really going through what should be in the movie. What I wanted to do is just use it as like, here's your visual diary. Now tell me more about these moments. And that's, that's where our, you know, that interview started to elevate because I got this stuff to sit and chat with him about, could call him and say, hey, could you confirm this? well, where are you driving with his kids here? What's that story all about? Those things started to really elevate and take on more meaning once we started to kind of chat about them. Okay, so just process-wise, once you've gotten you know, access to the footage and seen what's in there, have you already shot your interview with him or are you going back and shooting more with him in light of what he tells you? Yeah, I got to go back. I kind of got the footage. Then I got to interview him. And then we got to keep chatting, you know, and and it was also real helpful because he's super, you know, he's been uh, with Puff the whole run, you know, um, he's worked with Puff. And it was also real helpful to sit and chat with him to feel some confidence going in to that interview because Puff was the last, you know, I think he likes the dramatic last interview vibe, you know, it was kind of that was just this elephant in the room the whole time as well. But that getting to know D-Rock a little helped me shape just, you know, some things that only Puff could tell me, you know, and that that was important. So, so that's like kind of the next like amazing piece to it, which is, you know, it's a... And people, you know, don't, don't always necessarily understand that with Doc's, it is about performance, just like it is with features, right? It's not just the story, but it's like a good story well told. So, and, and you got like exquisite performances from, you know, Miss Wallace, from D-Rock, and then from Diddy, from Puff, like talk, like it, it was so unexpectedly um, emotional yeah. and intimate and kind of um, human with him. Talk about that relationship with building again, I guess, building the trust with him and then fostering it in the interview and sort of what you did to, to achieve that. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, it was always a goal for us to kind of like only have puff into the film when he enters his life. Cause we were real conscious to not have like, okay, you grew up in the same neighborhood. You're a famous artist. So you can speak on behalf of Big Biggie. We really wanted it to be like, the people who knew him really knew him in these younger years and carried through, through, you know, and kind of witnessed their best friend become one of the biggest stars in the world. Puff, you know, obviously connects with him when everybody started to know about him. You know, Puff it naturally in life comes to him kind of at the end of our story arc, you know? So it was important for me, like I liked that he came so deep in it because it was natural to it. We always thought it'd be cooler to not have Puff even show up in the film till he like naturally enters. But you know how the story goes. We kind of like that funeral opening and he he told some amazing stories of that day. And so then he slotted into the beginning a little bit, but then disappears, um, you know, till he naturally comes in for the most part. But again, I was able to show Puff Jamaica and the Donald Harrison scenes 
those were fully edited and looking in, in really good shape because they were even far more elaborate than they are in the film. And I remember he watched for like 12 minutes. I think that's the length of time I showed him. And, and we were sitting in the little back bedroom at the bungalow at the Beverly Hills um, Hotel. And he just looked at me, he's like, oh, okay, I get it. You're, you're like telling the real film on him. Like, this is the real shit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what's up. And he was like, cool. And then I just went out there and, you know, stuck to my script because I was feeling like a real veteran of the game by this point. And, and we had a good interview and it, that one is stressed as I was that it wouldn't happen. I kind of knew it was going to happen at some point. I mean, what kind of documentary about Biggie could come out on Netflix and not have him in it. So I just stayed confident it would happen. And I felt by then, you know, to have your big star come out and you're so, you, you know, your shit so well by then that I felt I had the conversation that I was hoping to have with him. But having that footage made an immense impact on just him kind of letting his guard down and realizing that this was a film about Christopher, not so much about even Biggie. It wasn't so much about your fame and popularity. This was about kind of how he, and so then he realized he was kind of like fifth on the totem pole. You know, like he, he wasn't even the guy who knew him the best in this movie, you know? So he, I, you know, he's smart, he gets things. And when he sees, he gets a little um, information, he knows what to do with it and how to shape his character. So how long do you shoot with him? How long, how extensive is that interview and how um, according to script or intention of what you came into it with, would, were there any interesting turns in it? Not really. That one, I got to say, stayed stayed pretty clean. I, I felt very on script with that one because I, again, you now know kind of what you need in the film even by this point. You're like, these are the areas. So I really had a point of focus. I was like, I just need, you know, your guys meeting, the, give me every detail of the meetings, all that early stuff with the demo. And then, you know, obviously there was a lot said about their Harlem, Brooklyn connection. So that was something I wanted him to speak to because everybody from Brooklyn got to speak about it, but nobody from Harlem did. And the main, you know, I also just wanted to know, you know, I, I, I don't know. From that, I feel like it, it kind of stayed where I would have expected. I was just more impressed with how um, like easygoing it was. Like I didn't feel like you know, it begun, begins with him, his whole little crew in there doing makeup and everything, getting a haircut. It, it felt more like maybe when I do a commercial with a big athlete or something. So that was the one big difference is like suddenly it felt like, well, fuck, we're doing a real production right here. Mm -hmm. Like, look at all this stuff. This doesn't even feel like our film anymore, you know? And, and then once they went away, it just kind of got in and it, it was real honest. For me, I was more tripping out. I kind of thought he was like maybe a little guy, but he looks like he could play like fullback for a legitimate team. And that I was more tripping on some of those things because here's Definitely. this guy that's bigger than life. You've seen a million times, but when you meet him, you can't help get over. Like I'm, I'm, I got all these questions, but I'm kind of tripping on how he looks, you know, like, wow, he looks incredible. How's this guy, you know, I'm just sitting there going like, man, he looks this. So I, I was just excited that he was on his game. And, you know, like for instance, there was a Biggie doc done on A&E a couple years prior. And that interview with Puff didn't strike me that way. You know, it didn't feel like he was there in the same regard. And I was just happy I got out of him the version where he could hang in there and, and be a star of this movie, which I think he kind of delivered a version of himself that again, like Christopher kind of made people go, well, man, I never heard him be this, you know, kind of maybe honest and uh, emotionally invested in it, you know? It was vulnerable and it was intimate and it was emotional in a way that was just very affecting. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. I, I have a couple times with all these interviews, they've all gotten really choked up. And, and I'm sure they've talked about this a lot, but 
I knew I was kind of at getting them to get into memories that meant a lot with them uh, for them and kind of I felt like that we just connected, you know, like you just hope those interviews can go good because it could go back to how long you don't get a lot of time, you know, with Puff period. And, and I didn't get a lot of time. I got about an hour and a half to do the wow. interview. And it was like straight clock ticking, you know, felt like, like I said, it felt a little more like when you work with LeBron or something, it's like, no, you get four hours, dude. And we're going to be reminding you by the minute of those four hours and you're always like i thought we were here to make this the best it can be you know <laughs> like what if i need four hours and eight minutes four hours dude you know get it done and you you learn to get that shit done because i'm so used to that behavior that, that's um it's i was just thinking sort of mentally it's like astonishing like i'm such a neurotic lunatic when i'm doing yeah. these interviews like mine go like five days reach the entire thing like the notion of getting like that level of, of of kind of i guess just like direct connection that quickly and I, which you have to with a star of that magnitude is um is amazing so let's talk about the um the funeral footage okay. um you know which you use to frame the movie and then come back to which is such um powerful stuff yeah. um the coverage of that like um and and how much of that like sound design where you're hearing the reporting of like okay they're over the going over the bridge whatever whatever was that real is that sound design yeah. like tell me what you did real so that was just all NBC news footage. And again, that was kind of like post Jamaica trip where we came back and I had the editor of Wild Wild Country on this. His name is Neil Michael John. That's who I began with. So I was like, I, I felt that series was, was so entertaining. And I was so excited to have this great editor. And here we are, you know, for almost whatever, six months we worked on Jamaica and then we got that NBC news footage. And, and that funeral, all, I, I'd say that funeral, my memories of that funeral almost were the guiding, the North Star of this whole project is like, how could on such a sad day when, that, when Hypnotize came on and I remember it vividly from just news feeds back in the day, I just remember going, man, people are partying. They are going off and there was so much joy and I, I don't think I ever solved the riddle. I just think it left a lasting impression. And then when I was going through this footage, you started to realize like when they come, you know, it's so somber. It feels like a JFK moment. And then they pull into the neighborhood and it's as if, you know, hypnotized kicks on and the place just, again, is emotionally off the charts, but it feels more party-esque. And again, now I know it's like, dude, somebody from their neighborhood got out of the neighborhood and he was their guy. He meant so much to them. It was a tough era in Brooklyn. It was the crack era for somebody to become the guy. That was a personal success to all those people. They all felt emotionally vested. So for me, it was symbolic of the film I wanted to make. Yeah, we know your hero's dying. He's not gonna make it through this, but how can I make an uplifting film because his music was so uplifting and meant so much to people. How could I do that dance? And that funeral always felt like the guiding force of the emotions, you know? And, and I, I, the first version of that funeral was like, again, like 10 minutes long, cause it was so fascinating. Just the long shots and to have the news guy on the walkie saying all those things. It, it was incredible to watch and it felt so when a, like a Netflix original pops up over that, I'm like, people are going to be tripping out. And, and it, again, it really caught people's interest when I was showing that movie to people, they were really into it, you know, cause it was so like, wow, this is crazy how long you're staying on things. And that's our goal. And even as we go back to the D-Rock footage, I was like, watch how long I'll hang on this shot, you know, because that's your dream. I know it gets hectic, but man, those moments are the best ones. They're the intimate ones. They're the things that I think give people this feeling of it's not a montage. You're really- It's when it becomes cinema. It's when yeah, it becomes- bringing this moment to life. So that footage was real eye-opening for me. And I, you know, you kind of, you get that out of the gates and you think it's so on. And then you start, then you hit this brick wall somewhere after this initial, you know, great experience of, lunch with mom, right to Jamaica, grandma, Donald Harrison. 
I got all this news footage. And then it's like, well, dude, I have nothing of him. I don't have one speck of Biggie, you know, like that's a real issue. And that was the biggest uh, thing for me to overcome is like, okay, now how am I going to make this the movie it needs to be? You know, and that that's where the more complex things came because a lot of that footage has been used and it's like, how am I going to do it? But I can give you one good example of how I transcended that is like, if you take that uh, street battle, the one against him and Priam that, that's real famous, I'd say that's the most famous Biggie clip yep. on, that lives on YouTube. When we sat with those guys, 50 Grand and Mr. C, they, they brought that whole day of footage and I sat in there with them and watched 40 minutes. I was like, wow, I've only seen like the one minute, you know, I only got to see the punchline. I, nobody, this is insane. So again, that started to uncork that. And then that led to like me going, hey, D-Rock, why are you wrapping your hand here? And then he tells this great story about how he thought that they were going to have to kick this dude's ass for you know, kind of teeing off on big. And it was so endearing and so innocent. And it made you realize how young they were and how how wild their life on the streets was that that was kind of a cool way to see that footage that's been seen a lot. But I was able to kind of unravel it and find a new way to present it to people where it felt like they got to be there a little more. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, really what you're talking about is recontextualizing all these things, right? So when you think of the news footage that opens the funeral, it's like, okay, yeah, you've seen the reduced like news, you know, the the, the, the spot that ran on the news, but suddenly when you open that up and, it, and you turned it into what is effectively, it's almost like a verite archival movie, you yeah. know, and it is precisely you holding those shots for so long that suddenly transform that into cinema you know yeah. and and then it's, it's the same thing with the battle with cream like suddenly by um playing more digging deeper unraveling it further you take something that is like this known object and then you're like wow i'm seeing yeah. it for the first time yeah and you put it in your hero's journey in the route you know you stash it somewhere really important in like you you make it feel like a seminal moment just as the mishaps like going to north carolina and getting out of there a day early you present those as if, man, if he stayed there one more day, this may have never happened. And if you start borrowing from any good movie, that's the, the trials and tribulations that face their hero's journey. I mean, you could get into some Joseph Campbell shit and try to solve all of this that way and just place uh, the film that way. And I, I think that that for me was, you know, that was everything for this movie because I had to kind of, um, you know, this material's been mined through a lot over the years. And that's, that was a sad reality that I kept facing every time I'd get excited, then I'd learn, oh, they, this got featured in that. And you, oh, dang, you know? But you, you know, there was enough in the end and then the D-Rock stuff started to get me into worlds that nobody had been able to even get at yet. And that's when you start to kind of feel like, all right, cool, we're, we're in that spot now. All right, two last questions for you, which is one, you know, as you were talking about, um, I guess, both of those scenes, what it brought up for me is the theme in some way, I think, at the center of the movie is kind of life, death, and, and resurrection, sort of, um, and how those influence each other, whether that's the funeral unexpectedly turning into like a celebration of the life, or whether it's the record title, and then the inverse of it on D-Rock's shirt, right? Like that is is such a sort of strong through line. And, and um, you know, was that kind of a guiding light or is that something that revealed itself as it went? No, I was a guiding light. I mean, my initial pitch to Miss Wallace sitting her was like, I want to make a film about your son's life and not focus on his death. So I think that was always kind of a guy, you know, something that I tried to make sure that I was being deep and philosophical with, you know, the whole the whole way through. I wanted people to understand what this guy was really like alive. And I also wanted people to understand that, yes, he died but he accomplished all his dreams and he gave everybody, all his friends, his whole life 
was based off of being a good friend. You know, that was like his thing, you know? And in the end, look at, I mean, even as C's was saying to Kevin, like they're still all, you know, kind of, he's still taking care of them in a lot of ways. And I think that's when you start to believe like, cool, this worked out the way it was meant to. It's sad, but this guy even helped his mom accomplish it, her dreams of being filthy rich. You know, and I'm in Jamaica with her and she's laying on a bed, giving out like, you know, stacks of money to her family in Jamaica, because again, that's the type of family they were. And that's, I think her son's talents kind of did. They, they became this great success for everybody that he cared about in his life. Beautiful, man. Beautifully said. My last question for you, I guess, is um, without wanting to pressure you or put you on the spot too much with it, but if you could wave the wand right now and do any, 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 any project next, what's the one you do next? God, I've been so confused about this because, you know, you have something that goes all right and everybody wants to, and I'm like, man, just let me kick it in the moment. You know, for me, I, I really like these character studies. I've been developing this movie with Joaquin Phoenix about um, plastic and its, you know, kind of issues with our world, just kind of where we are with plastic. And again, the environmental stuff means a lot to me. And we have an interesting idea with that. That's a project that I just can't seem to find a way to bring it to life yet without it being a normal kind of gloomy documentary about how screwed up everything is and how screwed we are. You know, in my perennial goal of making kind of things that make people feel good and kind of uplift, I'm trying to crack that because like all relationships, I've kind of phrased it as a love story. You know, we fell in love with this thing and then it kind of became something that, that wasn't what the re relationship first thought it was going to be. And how are we going to save the marriage in the end? You know, because it's not like something we're not getting rid of plastic. That one really challenges me. And I feel like some now like I'm like going, I got to crack this one, but I just have no idea what to put on screen. And that challenge really excites me, but it also like overwhelms me. And I hope somebody will just drop me like, um, like today I talked to uh, a great filmmaking entity about doing one on ODB. And I was like, I'd probably jump right into something like that, you know, if I could too, because I feel much like this one, there's a great story to tell there, but yeah, I don't know. And I'm also real interested in a you know, doing a narrative show with my cousin, Chris, that did Thicker Than Water with me that we have going with Kem Nunn, the writer. And Oh, I love him. Yeah, brilliant. The source, tapping the yeah. source. Doing something like that would excite me a lot. Well, because like you said, I feel kind of on my game. Doing all those interviews, they give you this confidence that you're like good at what you do, you know? And that's what this is all about, is just feeling confident to go tell whatever story it is, because it's not going to be my story. No matter what version, it, it's some other story that I got to kind of be the guy and help everybody tell it. And I, I just, man, I feel a little uh, out there on what what it is going to be next for me you know i i just don't know i can't wait to uh find out and i hope that one day you and i have the chance to yeah. uh, to do something together too just because it's uh you know from thicker than water all the way through um you know through now it's just so exciting to see man you're doing i'm going to send you all all the vinyls of those um albums yes yes and i'm getting them finally on the digital because those have been dead to the world for 20 years. I mean, we put them out like you should see how intricate our packaging is from, I mean, talk about sabotaging yourself. I mean, we made such expensive packages that nobody could really even afford them back then because that's all we cared about. Like, how does it look and feel? And It's an object, man. It's an art object. That's great. I love it. But, you know, because of that, they're just, they've been gone. They never even made it to the digital era. So I got, I got to get those. That's a big goal of mine. But I'll send you those records because that was one thing just through Jack's successes. I'm always able to like, we got to get our surf tracks out on vinyl, soundtracks out on vinyl. And I will send them to you because we at least pulled that off. Beautiful. Excellent, man. Thank you so much for your time yeah. and congratulations on the movie. It's a brilliant. Thanks to you brilliant. as well, man. Way, way to go on your films. I, I, I want to 
flip this back on you and talk about both of them. Well, we'll, we'll we will do that. And let me put our heads together on something before too long. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thank you to Emmett Malloy for sharing his time and his secrets. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound engineering and mix comes from Nathaniel at Post Up Audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for listening.